Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 403, The Siege of Exeter. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Karen, Chris, and Magali for signing up already. Exeter stood in open defiance against William and his army. They wished to be free of this Norman and his knights. They were willing to pay him tribute, as one would pay a pirate, but they would not accept him as their king. The townspeople repaired their city battlements. They reinforced and manned the city walls. Exeter mobilized for war. And even the merchants and craftsmen who were just passing through found themselves conscripted into the rebellion. We don't know precisely what caused the people of Exeter to rise up, though it likely wasn't one thing. This William character didn't exactly have a light touch, and we're told that the men who he had set up as regents in his absence were just as ruthless, if not more so, than their liege. So the English were suffering under the Norman boot. And even if you were lucky enough to avoid the outright violence, you wouldn't have been lucky enough to avoid the sudden poverty and upheaval that was caused by the new royal policies designed to strip England of its resources. Lands and titles were being seized. Homes were being seized. And after that, if you had anything left, it likely would have to go to pay off William's new punitive geld. The English had every reason to rebel because many of them had nothing left to lose. And it looks like the Normans knew it. The record tells us that William warned his men to never let their guard down, not even for a moment, because these English had a wild independence about them, especially in the border territories. And this looks like a moment of rare social insight on the part of William, because he was right about the attitude of the borderlands. The marches had a distinct culture and history that suggests that they were quite comfortable throwing elbows, not unlike Northumbria. And when it came to the Western marches, they also had a habit of inviting a few friends from Wales and Ireland to join the party. So William was wise to be wary of the marches. But why was it Exeter that formed the vanguard of the rebellion and not some other Western town? Well, we aren't told. But my guess is that Exeter had something that no other city in England had. Githa, the mother of the fallen king Harold Godwinson, lived there. The Godwinsons had deep roots in southwestern England. Githa held lands in nearby Somerset, and one of King Harold's sons also held lands in the region. Githa's brother had been an earl in nearby Gloucester, and she continued to be linked to the earldom. And actually, when you look at the charters and other supporting documents, you can see that Githa's donations and gifts all went to the West. And Exeter was no exception. Githa was a patron of St. Olaf's, and the city itself was the dower of her daughter, Queen Edith. There is even a street within the city named Earlsbury, which is translated quite literally to the Earl's Burr, which suggests that that street was likely connected to the hall of the House of Godwin. Exeter was Godwinson territory, 
and in residence there was the senior most member of the dynasty. And that was just the kind of gravitas that you might need if you wanted to lead a full-scale rebellion. And given the fact that Exeter was turning itself into a fortress, I suspect that there was an intention that it would be the landing ground for a larger campaign, one that would eventually include the sons of King Harold Godwinson and whatever allies they might have managed to recruit from Ireland. And this long-term plan could explain why they offered William tribute in that early exchange of messengers. But they still refused to let William or his knights into the city. They might have been trying to buy time. Because Exeter would have made a fine landing point for any future campaigns, as the River X would have allowed an allied fleet to easily sail right up to the town and take harbor there. So I suspect that was the plan. And that that was why it all began in Exeter. The trouble, though, was that not everyone was on board. Due to the nature of English nobility, many of the wealthiest men of Exeter also held lands outside of Exeter. And those lands were now exposed. And they were lands that, if this all went badly, could be stripped from them. In fact, no, not could be stripped. They would be stripped. The Normans were using any excuse they could to strip English nobles of their lands and titles. Even church properties weren't safe. You might recall that one monastery even had some of their lands declared forfeit because a nearby sheriff had fought at Hastings, which is an extremely loose association that mostly amounts to being within walking distance of an alleged rebel. So you can only imagine what would happen to the people who were actually in rebellion. So... The wealthy men of Exeter were concerned. I mean, peasants dying in battle or being massacred by rampaging knights was a risk that they were willing to take. But when William began marching west and the magnates realized how exposed their estates were, well, suddenly they realized they had something real on the line. I mean, if this didn't go well, they might lose their third favorite summer home. And so suddenly, there was a division in the city. And Orderic tells us that the magnates rushed to offer William hostages and promise him fealty. And being among the first to offer submission to William was probably their best chance at being able to keep that third favorite summer home. But there was a part that was being left out here, one that you might be guessing at. Because you know how the justice system works. Leniency is possible, but it's often only reserved for the elite. When authorities are talking about the potential of some kid, they're usually not talking about a kid growing up in the projects. When they make exceptions due to the respective position of someone in their community, they're not usually talking about a beloved single mother. No one sees a family of four as too big to fail and deserving of a bailout. No, things like that are typically reserved for the powerful. And that was the case in the other medieval period, too. A handful of wealthy land magnates did have a reasonable chance of avoiding punishment. But that wasn't necessarily the case for the rest of Exeter. These thanes were signing the death warrants for the citizens of Exeter, all to just save their own skin. And the citizens knew it. Orderic tells us that the people absolutely freaked out when the Thanes came back and declared the rebellion over. 
and that they panicked about how much guilt they had incurred against this man who was already far too comfortable with killing the poor. The Thanes had put them in a position where they really didn't have a choice. They had to hold the city walls themselves. And they would do it with or without these rich cowards. And that's an outcome that seems all too obvious to me sitting here in 2022. But our culture is quite different from the English of the 11th century. And considering that these Thanes provided William with hostages, I have to assume that they never imagined that the common folk of Exeter would defy their orders. Now, I did read one historian who raised the possibility that this was all a ruse and that they were buying time for reinforcements. But I don't think the record supports that interpretation. Orderick and the Chronicle are both clear that the citizens of Exeter were betrayed by their thanes. And if this was all just a delay tactic, then why provide William with hostages? Why not just slowly drag out the false discussions of peace? So to me, that doesn't make any sense. And this looks instead like the aristocracy had simply failed to consider the lives of the people that they were putting at risk by stoking this rebellion that they had no intention of actually backing. And instead, they only thought of themselves and their lands. It's completely in keeping with the way the nobility operates that they wouldn't have imagined that the peasants had any desires or wishes of their own. But they did. And so the thanes were told where they could shove their peace plan. And the rebellion continued. And as for the hostages, who were likely close friends or family members of the thanes, well, they were now left to the tender mercies of William, who wasn't all that tender or merciful even at the best of times. And this was not the best of times. This was not going to end peacefully. It couldn't. Not with this man. And so Exeter went to work. The gates were shut and barred, the city walls were crammed with defenders, and based on the language of Orderic, outworks were constructed, projecting outside of the primary walls of the Burr, and these too were stuffed full of fighters. The entire city was mobilized, and they would have to now maintain their watches. They couldn't take a break or relax, because only four miles down the road was the Norman army. And sure enough, it wasn't long before a detachment of 500 knights came into view. They rode around the city, just outside of the range of the archers, surveying the defenses of Exeter. And leading them was a finely dressed man who looked just super pissed off. So that must be him. That must be the bastard. And after a while, the man and his hundreds of knights departed heading back where they came. And if it was me on the walls of Exeter, just some random guy without any experience in warfare, I probably would have sat there thinking we just held off the first assault, and I didn't even have to swing a sword. And considering that many of the people on the walls had about the same level of experience in warfare that I do, I bet there were quite a few cheers on the walls as those knights wheeled around and rode back down the road. But anyone who knew anything about war knew that it was coming to Exeter. Real war, not this scouting party. It was only a matter of time. And unfortunately for Exeter, it wasn't much time at all. William and his army were already camped very close. And this style of warfare suited them very well, as they could move quickly. 
But this was also William and the Norman army, and they were angry. So while they could have easily marched to Exeter at haste, they didn't. Instead, as they approached the rebel city, they fanned out along the countryside and ravaged it. Livestock were seized and slaughtered, fields were torched, homes and barns were set alight, and if any peasants were caught out in the open, well, and it probably wasn't long before the people manning the walls of Exeter caught the scent of smoke. Or perhaps they saw the orange glow of fires to the east. And if they did, they must have known what was coming their way. The horsed army of William was fast and mobile, and they were able to use that advantage to inflict an enormous amount of damage upon the homes and farms in the surrounding countryside. And before long, the devastation would have been impossible for the people of Exeter to miss. And then the Norman army came into view. And there were far more than 500 of them. From the first moment that William landed on these shores, he had wielded terror as a weapon. And I have no doubt that the appearance of his army was intended to inspire fear into the people of Exeter. But not wanting to leave anything to chance, William took it one step farther. He ordered a hostage forward, and this man was marched just outside of the gates of the city. And there, in full view of the citizens of Exeter, the Normans cut the man's eyes out. There was a good chance that his friends and family saw this happen. Furthermore, it's likely that the friends and family of other hostages that William had imprisoned were also on the walls, watching this play out, wondering what fates would befall their loved ones. And so once again, William was using terror to bend people to his rule. And while nobody wants to have their eyes cut out in any time or culture, in the world of medieval Europe, Cutting out a hostage's eyes carried a special symbolic context, one that the people of Exeter almost certainly understood. William was telling them that they had just offended his royal dignity. This was a declaration of royal vengeance. And after it was done, and the poor man was either left bleeding and maimed at the gates, or was dragged back to the Norman camp, the message implicit in his mutilation would have hung heavy over the city. And the language of Orderic is interesting here, because it implies that William expected this to break Exeter. But it didn't. I mean, the people did break, but not in William's favor. Gripped by what Orderic calls mad obstinacy over the treatment of that hostage and the unknown fate of the remaining hostages, the people in Exeter hardened. Witnessing this tyrant's tantrum carved into a helpless man had enraged the people behind the walls, and they resolved to defend their homes to the last. And the people didn't just rage back at William. Malmesbury tells us a story that suggests that they taunted William and his knights, and basically flipped the bird at his royal dignity. We're told that one of the men manning the walls turned around, dropped his trousers, and farted at the king. And it turns out that William handled farts just about as well as any Victorian headmistress. The king was big mad. Because symbolic communication via torture and maiming, well, that's regal and elegant. But symbolic communication via farts? That's positively rude. The king wanted this done. 
now. And what happens next is something that we've seen time and time again with William. Despite the eagerness of pop histories to describe William as the most brilliant military strategist ever to walk the earth, the truth appears to be that he was actually pretty rash. At Hastings, he had kept his men up all night running drills before the battle for fear of an attack. And then once at the battlefield, his army suffered terrible losses because he kept attacking a fortified position uphill rather than waiting for the English lines to be weakened by his archers. Then after Hastings, he rushed into the Malfoss and suffered even more losses. In many ways, I think William's military strategy shares a lot in common with Bill O'Reilly's famous meltdown. Well, do it live! Fuck it! Do it live! Fucking thing sucks! Especially when he felt thwarted, and he was definitely feeling thwarted here. And the people of Exeter actually had time to prepare for this. They also had the advantage of pre-existing fortifications that were then supplemented by the efforts of the townsfolk and craftsmen. But, unfortunately for them, it still was the Normans who had the upper hand here. Because while burrs and fortifications existed in England, and while defensive positions had been a staple of English warfare since at least the time of Alfred, the methods of war within England still tended to assume that armies would meet in the field. It was a culture of open warfare and shield walls. But the Normans were different. Normandy, and France in general, had fully embraced chivalric culture and all the castles, sieges, and nasty bits of business that came with it. And this was going to be a siege, which meant that for the Normans, this was just another day at the office. And it was a day that William wanted to be over as quickly as possible because moderation wasn't exactly in his vocabulary, especially when he felt thwarted. This was a man who reportedly beat his intended bride, Matilda, because she wasn't quick enough to accept his proposal. A man whose fellow nobles often ended up mysteriously dying whenever they got in his way. A man who had just carved out a man's eyes simply to communicate that his feelings were a bit hurt. And now these filthy f***ing Englishmen were farting at him? Absolutely not. If there had been email, he would have written so many emails right then. But the internet hadn't been invented yet, so he would just have to take the walls and teach these yokels who was in charge. And he would do it with terror. And also, apparently, without much thought about how many lives on his own side would be lost in the process. And if you're thinking that this sounds like a bum deal for the knights that were with him and were following his orders you have to consider the culture that they were living in. I mean, sure, there was a risk of death or horrible injury, but in chivalric society, this was pretty much what they'd spent their entire lives training for. And the people behind the walls of Exeter weren't knights. They weren't even Norman. They were English. They were backwards and weak. Nothing more than a bunch of farmers. And for the knights, this wasn't just an open invitation for loot and plunder, which it certainly was. It was also an easy path to glory and honor. I mean, who knows what kinds of rewards William might give them for bringing this rebellion to a swift end. The last year had been an endless stream of get-rich-quick schemes for the Norman soldiers, as well as their commanders. I mean, even the march to Exeter had made them wealthier. For over a year now, they've been spending their time pillaging and plundering these worthless Englishmen. 
So I suspect that as they approached Exeter, the Normans weren't all that worried. And instead, they were emboldened by their previous victories over the English and looking forward to turning this political crisis into yet more personal profit. As I've said, chivalry was an absolute cultural disaster. But driven by this absurd cultural framework, the Normans set upon the walls of the city of Exeter. And our accounts of this battle aren't as detailed as we might like. The Normans didn't set about creating a heroic narrative of what follows. There weren't any big works of embroidery commissioned to highlight how great it had all gone. Instead, much like the mysterious burning of Canterbury, our sources get rather tight-lipped. And in the case of Poitiers, his writing stops shortly before all this even began. And it stops literally mid-sentence. His final sentence begins to tell us something about Archbishop Eldred of York. And then it just stops. Yeah, it's just gone. We don't know where it went. And actually, there's no surviving copy of his original text. We just have texts that have been copied from that partial version and then copied again. And Orderic tells us that Poitiers' original text covered the events through to 1071. However, every one of the remaining versions are missing those last few years. The same years where William was embroiled in rebellion after rebellion. So, if you or anyone you know is a rich European aristocrat and have any information about this missing parchment, contact the British Library. With your help, we may be able to finally solve the mystery of Poitiers' missing pages. But back to the siege. So Orderic and the remaining surviving accounts tell us that the Normans completely encircled the city. Nothing could go into the city and nothing could come out. And once the city and their inhabitants were cut off from the outside world, William issued another order. They would directly assault the walls. Now, assaulting the walls of a fortified city is an incredibly risky bet, even in the best of times. And that only gets worse if you have allowed your feelings to override your intellect and you ignore the reality that if these people felt free to moon a king in the field that perhaps they knew something he didn't. And maybe they had a bit more ice in their veins than the collection of baby nobles that he'd met in London. And predictably, the Normans get real quiet about what happened next. But the Chronicle perks up, and it lets us know that the Normans began to suffer terrible losses. But this was William, and terrible losses weren't the kind of thing that would stop him. So he launched assault after assault with Orderic telling us that he deployed the utmost force of his arms. And for days, the people of Exeter rebuffed it all. They held back everything that the Norman king and his experienced army could throw at them. So this must have been a bloodbath. And things began to turn so much against the Normans that William was forced to change tactics. And he ordered his men to begin digging a tunnel towards the wall in an effort to undermine the defenses of the city. All while the people of Exeter used every tool at their disposal to withstand the Norman assault. Now again, we don't know precisely what the people of Exeter were planning. Our records are abysmal, especially when it comes to people being actively subjugated. 
But there is a good chance that all of this was a waiting game, and that they were waiting for the sons of Harold Godwinson and whatever allies they could muster to land and launch an effort to retake England. There's also a good chance that they are hoping that their open defiance against William would inspire other cities to join the rebellion. And we do know from the records that messengers and diplomats had been sent out aiming to make allies. And so if that was the plan, Exeter's belligerence makes a lot of sense. And the fact that they were able to hold off William and his army so well also tells me that Orderick was telling the truth and that the entire city had been mobilized for war. Not just the handful of men who were trained to guard the walls, but everyone. I mean, that's just my guess based on the surviving records, but I think it's plausible. The trouble, though, was that while the English commoners were courageous and ready to fight and fart to the death, there was still the minor issue of the noble class. These folks weren't exactly Beowulf. And the warrior kings of the Heptarchy were about 400 years gone by now. And instead, if you want to imagine an 11th century English noble, picture your landlord, especially if they live out of state. They're not here to make your life better. They're here to get paid in their mailbox. And as the Norman Trench stretched closer to the walls, things began to look grim. Those sons of King Harold Godwinson and all the famed allies they were hopefully building, they were nowhere to be seen. The English allies from other cities, their Ferds and any other warriors they might be able to gather, none of them were crashing in to join the fight. The Thanes of England, those with all the wealth and power to make such things happen in this society, apparently had gotten cold feet. And so Exeter stood alone. But the people of the city continued to fight on, even when it must have been absolutely clear to everyone that no help was coming. The days dragged on, and the fighting continued. And William threw everything he had at the city. And according to Orderick, that damnable trench was getting closer and closer. And then the people of Exeter were betrayed by their leaders. Again. At some point during the fighting, perhaps taking advantage of the fog of war or simply using the cover of night, Countess Githa, the mother of the fallen king, escaped Exeter and fled. According to John of Worcester, she was joined by many others, probably many if not all of the regional nobility. Presumably, they took advantage of the landscape and floated down the River X before William's camp could intercept them. We're told that she and, quote, many distinguished men's wives, end quote, took refuge on the island of Flatholme in the Severn Estuary, while the noblemen may have fled to Ireland to link up with the sons of Harold Godwinson. And so, Githa and her inner circle were safe. But at what cost? This was a disaster. Now, Malmesbury tells us that towards the end of the siege, part of the city's walls had fallen down accidentally, which I suspect was actually the result of the Norman army's efforts at undermining. But while a breach in the walls is dangerous, it's not fatal. But being abandoned by your leadership during the fight, well... And the Chronicle straight out tells us that Exeter had been betrayed by their thanes. 
And I think that's fair. Though it also seems clear that they've been equally betrayed by the House of Godwin. Because as Githa and her companions fled, was there any concern about what William would do to the common folk that they left behind who were still manning the walls? It sure doesn't seem like it. And for the South, it also seems like this was the final straw in their support of the Godwinsons. Following this debacle, Englishmen in the South were suddenly recorded as fighting against the Godwinsons. And I wonder if that shift was due to what happened at Exeter. Because this was bad. And as for the people of that brave city, after 18 days of brutal fighting and God knows how many casualties, they were now completely alone. No reinforcements were coming from overseas. No cities were rallying to join their cause. Githa and the other nobles who had started this whole mess had fled to save their skin. It was done. And so the people of Exeter sought terms with William. And we can't be sure if William knew what had taken place behind the walls of Exeter. And honestly, there's a good chance he didn't. I mean, how could he have known? And so actually, the city was probably negotiating from a pretty strong position at this point. The Normans had been fought back for over a fortnight, and they were a foreign army in hostile territory that had already dealt with numerous rebellions. And there were also bands of woodsmen out there roaming the countryside, assassinating anyone who looked a bit too French. So things were a bit wild out there. And as such, William appears to have been very motivated to bring this matter to a close quickly before anyone else got ideas, especially since the sources indicate that the Normans had taken heavy losses. So as far as William knew, this might have been his best chance at declaring victory. And so his negotiators began to work out some favorable terms for the city of Exeter. Among them, William promised that his army wouldn't loot the city, which was actually a really big concession. England following the Norman conquest was looking a lot less like a kingdom these days and more like a target after Black Friday. They'd taken pretty much everything that wasn't nailed down and were now hauling out the crowbars. So saying that that was going to stop for the city of Exeter would have been a real attractive offer. But also at this point, it probably was clear to the English that this king wasn't particularly good at reining in his men. Discipline like moderation, wasn't something that was high on the 11th century Norman value system. I mean, William couldn't stop his knights from burning Dover. He couldn't even stop them from burning and looting London during his own coronation. And it seems that the people of Exeter had heard those stories, because they weren't going to let William get away with just simply giving them his word. Instead, if he wanted peace, he had to post his most trusted and well-trained soldiers as guards at the gate of the city and it would be them who would be tasked with preventing the Norman army from entering Exeter. William also promised to repeal the new punishing taxes. Well, not overall. He would repeal them just for Exeter. And he agreed to reduce their taxes back to the pre-conquest levels. These were two enormous concessions. And the fact that William made them, or even heard them without deciding to collect more eyeballs because his royal dignity had been damaged, makes me think that Malmesbury had it wrong when he wrote that William, quote, easily reduced the city of Exeter, end quote. 18 days of fighting, incurring severe casualties, and being forced to undermine the city doesn't sound easy to me. And William wasn't exactly the kind of guy to make concessions just to be nice. 
So I think this agreement shows that Exeter was an absolute debacle for the Normans. And William was doing what he had to, to just make it all stop. Though, as version D of the Chronicle is quick to remind us, these promises might have been pretty easy for William. Because he was a lying liar who lied. And he had no issues with breaking his word. And so I'm sure that William was well aware that he could just choose to reinstate those taxes at a later date, if he felt like it. Especially since, as part of the peace plan, William was allowed to build a castle within the walls of Exeter. The castle, later known as Rougemont, would be manned by his ally, Baldwin, as well as a large garrison of knights. Exeter would now be occupied. And with that handled, William continued his march west into Cornwall. We're told that he was seeking to restore order, which makes me wonder what the West was up to while this siege was ongoing. Was there more rebellion and we're just not being told about it? Was he trying to find Githa and the other nobles who had fled? I don't know. But after a while, William was satisfied with the situation and he returned to Winchester and disbanded his army. With all that done, he sent for Matilda. It was time for her to be crowned queen. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And as always, if you'd like to help us keep the project going, you can sign up for membership over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>